It's Thursday, December 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We have been seeing a decline in those identifying as religious for some time now, and in the absence of religious belief, many have channeled that into political belief. What is America supposed to mean, or what does it mean to be un-American? Politics have become the new religion, and ideological intensity has risen, driving a divide in the country. Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic, joins us for more. Next, another story of students taking on mountains of debt only to have high-paying jobs they were promised out of reach. Law school, which was once seen as a great path to a well-paying job, is the latest to be scrutinized as students often take out six-figure federal loans. Recent graduates of the University of Miami School of Law borrowed a median of $163,000, and two years later, half of them were earning $59,000 or less, making it difficult to pay down their loans. Just 15% of recent grads were able to begin repaying their student loans after those two years. Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Politics should not be about creating enemies and defeating them. It shouldn't be existential. And it's better to look at our fellow Americans as precisely that. They are our fellow citizens. They are not evil. We're going to have to find a way to live with them. Joining us now is Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us, Shadi. Hi, thanks for having me. You wrote an interesting article for The Atlantic about America without God and how politics is kind of the new religion. We've seen over the past decade or so Christianity go down, people identifying as that go down, just kind of religion in decline. And we've seen the rise. I think uh, Pew called it the nuns. So these are people that are atheists, agnostics, those that just do not claim any religion. That number has grown. I think it's about a quarter of the population now. As some of this uh, religious intensity has gone away, ideological intensity has stepped in. Uh, you know, we see the constant fight between the right and the left and how it's like tribalism. You know, people are on all sides of it. So, Shadi, tell me a, a little bit about uh, what you were writing, what you were trying to uh, get across with this. Part of it is a be careful what you wish for situation that a lot of, let's say, secular elites in major cities are suspicious of religion or at least too much religion. So they might have expected that as Christianity declines in the U.S., that people would become more rational, more reasonable, sensible, and that ideological passions would decrease and we'd all be able to live better lives accordingly. But something close to the opposite has happened instead. And this is where I think the puzzle really becomes important. Why would this be the case, this counterintuitive result? The basic argument I make in the piece is that Christianity doesn't just go away. People still have a desire for meaning. And especially since, as Americans, we have always been a nation of believers. I mean, in, in many ways, we are an ideological country that were based on founding ideals, a founding creed. And to be American has that substantive content, unlike many other nation states where to be German, let's say, is more an accident of birth. Germany is the land of the Germans. There is no particular ideology that 
makes you German or not German. So because we're a nation of believers, and we have been really since our founding, that belief doesn't go away. It just gets transferred to other things. So it might have once been decades ago, more focused on Christianity and religion more broadly, but now it's being channeled into what might be called political religions. And I mentioned two in the article. One is Trumpism, which instead of, um, well, certainly a lot of Christians uh, supported Trump and Trumpism, but Trump was the focus and not, let's say, Jesus Christ. If we look on the left, we have the rise of wokeism. People can call it different things, but an emphasis which is well-intentioned and good. I think most people would agree that racial justice is important, but you have a version of it that has gotten so fervent and so uncompromising that it does take on the characteristics of a religion. But the problem is, with wokeness, there's religion without the possibility of forgiveness or mercy. And that's one of the good things that religion and Christianity offer. There is possibility for redemption, if not in this life, then in the next life. When you don't have religion, then you become very focused on this world because it's really all that you have and it's all that you're focusing on. And that's where I think things become a little bit dangerous. And you made mention in the article, too, about, you know, more on kind of American identity, even. What is America supposed to mean? And you you made mention the article, you know, it's rare to hear people, you mentioned Germans, uh, saying somebody is un-German or, you know, un-Swedish or something, un-British. But you do hear a lot of times people calling other people un-American. And that's kind of where these dividing lines can happen. You know, you're so held up on your beliefs about something, you're calling other people out because they're not up to snuff, let's say. So this is both our blessing and our curse as Americans. It's a blessing because we all share a commitment to what we might call the American idea. But the problem increasingly is that we don't agree on what that American idea means. And you might think of it as akin to a schism in a church or in a particular religion. And you might say, well, If Christians disagree with each other, at least they share Christianity. But sometimes the divides that are most difficult to resolve are the ones within the family. And we all know about dinner table conversations where these are people you love, but in the end, it's hard to reconcile. And that is, I think, increasingly the direction that we're going in. We believe in America, most of us, but we can't agree on what the founding creed is and what it stands for any longer. The discussion to get there would be so difficult, I think, especially how we have become pretty divided in our politics. And it just seems that these ideologies on both sides kind of filled that vacuum, as you you say, as religion and people identifying as religious kind of wanes. So where do we meet in the middle? How do we get back there? Part of the solution, I mean, it's certainly not easy to do, but in theory, you would have Americans de-emphasizing the importance of politics. Politics is something that we should all care about because we're citizens and we want to make our country better. But politics should not be about creating enemies and defeating them. It shouldn't be existential. And it's better to look at our fellow Americans as precisely that. They are our fellow citizens. They are not evil we're going to have to find a way to live with them. I mean, so if you're looking at it from a liberal perspective and I identify more on the left side of the spectrum, then, you know, there are 74 million Trump voters. 
if you made politics into the main arbiter in terms of how you think about your colleagues, your friends and your family, that's 74 million people who are beyond the pale. That's not sustainable because that is a lot of people in a democracy and you have to, in some sense, live with the other. And also it can, it can be reversed as well. And obviously there are a lot of presuppositions and stereotypes about liberals in certain parts of the country that they are all godless, immoral, whatever it happens to be. And we can't do elections that way. If we see every election as existential, where the country could be destroyed if the other party wins, that's just not going to work. So the question then is, how do we kind of put politics in its proper place and realize that this world is temporal, it's limited, it's not eternity, and there are things that go beyond this world, let's say. Shadi Hamid, contributing writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, while I think a lot of people would consider $70,000 a year to be a pretty good salary for these lawyers, some of them have $300,000 in student loans. Joining us now is Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. You know, we recently did a story about student loan debt from master's programs at elite schools. This was focusing on uh, these elite master programs. I think it had to do mostly with film school. But the people that were going into these programs had to take out a ton of federal loans, $300,000 when they were all said and done. And then two years later, you know, the jobs that they were placed in, the, the jobs that they ended up getting, they were finding it very hard to repay those loans. So this is a very similar story. This one has to do with law school. But the base of it is the same. These students are taking out tons of federal loans. And then years later, the jobs really, they're just not making enough money to help pay all that down. So, Andrea, walk us through. What are we seeing with law schools this time? First of all, I'll say that I think there's a popular misconception out there that you go to law school and you graduate and you make six figures. That's true for a certain subset of law school graduates. I think that's true very much at some of the top law schools in the country. What is true for more law school graduates at lower rank, but even good law schools, is that you'll graduate making between forty-five dollars and $75,000 a year. And only a sliver of the top students get access to those big firm jobs. Now, while I think a lot of people would consider $70,000 a year to be a pretty good salary for these lawyers, some of them have $300,000 in student loans. And so what we're finding is that it's very difficult for people to pay back a $300,000 loan on that kind of salary. Yeah, you mentioned in the article, starting lawyer salaries generally fall into two clusters. So about $45,000 mm -hmm. and $75,000 for public service and small firm attorneys. And if you're lucky, you know, you graduated from a big name school, all that, and you get placed in a large firm, you could make closer to $190,000. So those are kind of the two categories there. For this story, you focused a lot on the University of Miami School of Law. The median that was borrowed for their students was 163000 and two years later, half of them were earning $60,000 or less. And uh, it was pretty tough for a lot of them to start repaying those loans. 
so Miami is a top 100 law school consistently in U.S. News and World Report rankings, which all law schools sort of, you know, it's their Bible. But at the same time of those top schools, it had the biggest gap between debt and earnings. So we wanted to look into Miami and figure out why that is. Now, those salary figures, the 59000 that is from graduates um, who graduated in about five years ago. So it's going to be a little bit higher now. But regardless, that's a big gap between the debt and the earnings. And a lot of these students, years ago, when you went to school and you took out student loans, you were supposed to pay over the next 10 years, you paid off your student loans. Well, now that's been dragged out to 20 or 30 years. People are on these much, much longer payment plans and they're enrolling in income-based repayment, which means that your payment is set according to your income. The problem is when you're on a plan that says you can pay less because you don't earn that much, your interest continues to accumulate. So what we're seeing for even some of these lawyers, that their balances are growing, not shrinking. And that's happening overwhelmingly for the recent Miami graduates. The simple question is, why are these students taking on so many loans? And it seems to center around two things. First, obviously, the tuition for these law schools have been going up year after year. That's one thing. The other part of it is this uh, Grad Plus loan program, where basically you can borrow up to the cost of tuition plus fees plus living expenses. So a lot of these uh, younger students who you know might not have as much experience with money, they're taking out the maximum loan possible. And a few years down the line, once they finish law school, boom, now they have this whatever it is, $300,000 of debt. So yeah, there are a couple different things there, which is one, I think a lot of people, readers will write me and say, they should be smarter than this. They can look up the numbers. I think that there are a couple things at play here, which is one, law schools really market themselves. I mean, they're a business ultimately, and they're marketing themselves as, you know, they're not going to put your pay is just going to be so-so um, <laughs> on the front of their brochure. Right. Nobody would apply um, at that point. Right. And so, I mean, that's what one of the professors in our story says. He says law schools engage in this kind of magical thinking in order to keep the lights on. Another issue is we're dealing with usually people who are 22, fresh out of college. In a lot of these cases, these are kids who, in fact, most of the people I talked to in my story were first generation college students, didn't have families who were guiding them through the process. And I, and I think there's this myth in our society of become a doctor or a lawyer and you're set. And so they go to law school and they take out $300,000 thinking that it's going to be this gateway to a new life. And it doesn't necessarily yield the kind of results that they were expecting. They don't realize quite how hard it is to pay off $300,000 in debt on a sub six-figure salary. Law schools themselves, why are costs going up so much? I mean, what is it for them that they have to keep going? Is it uh, just money grabs? Is it just uh, the cost of operating? That's something we actually spent a lot of time asking various deans about. And unfortunately, a lot of those numbers on law school budgets and such are not public. So it's really hard to say definitively. What people told us, though, is that the cost of 
maintaining various law clinics has gone up. The cost of giving scholarships, which let me come back to, has gone up. And law schools also are expected to be revenue drivers for the university, maybe not as much as they were pre-recession. And I'm talking about the 2007 to 9 recession, but they're still expected to contribute. Now, the issue with scholarships, I want to flag because law schools, they do give away a lot of scholarships and they're very public about this. The sort of wrinkle in that is that those are often merit-based scholarships. They go to students who they're trying to recruit because they have high LSAT scores, which will improve their, wait for it, U.S. News and World Report rankings. So ultimately, you see a lot of kids from lower income backgrounds who are the ones who are borrowing the most. You profiled one student. His name was Dylan. He went to University of Miami Mm -hmm. Law School. You know, in the end, like right now, I think currently he owns about that. He owes about 300,000 in debt. But tell me a little bit about his story, because he's finding trouble right now getting a loan for a home because his uh, debt load is too high. Correct. And I think this is something that people don't think about when they take on this debt is how it affects your credit. So Dylan graduated um, about uh, five years ago from Miami, worked as a public defender for a couple of years, realized it's really hard to survive in Miami on a public defender salary, switched to the private sector. And he thought, okay, I'm making over $100,000 now. I'm set. But then he and his fiance went to the bank earlier this year and they tried to get a loan and they were limited in how much they could actually get approved for. And the reason was because his debt was too high, that his debt compared to his income was really out of whack. And that was just floored him because he he said to me, you know, here I am, an attorney in the private sector making good money and I can't get even approved to get a single family home. And I've talked to other students, you know, for this story who who weren't mentioned, but who said similar things that they had trouble getting approved for credit card limits or getting approved, you know, that it affected their credit score. And the reason is, you know, this debt as it accrues, especially as the interest accrues when you're not repaying principal can really be harmful to you financially. You know, all of these stories are just kind of warning signs, you know, cautionary tales, right? These are worthwhile professions. If this is what you want to do, go for it. That's great. Get that loan if you need it. But you got to be smart on that debt load you're going to take and being able to pay it off later. You know, you're not going to, everybody doesn't get placed in these high paying professions right away after. So, I mean, these are the cautionary tales you got to be careful for. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, if you are going to a top law school and you know that you want to go that big law route and, you know, it's grueling, but you're ready to do it, you will make that big money. But if you are looking at other law schools, I talked to people for the story who said, oh, my gosh, I turned down another school, you know, where I had a scholarship because Miami was more prestigious it's important to weigh the financial consequences of a decision and to know about the salary ranges that you're going to see when you you graduate and to see how realistic the debt is to pay off. And I think that a lot of 22-year-olds don't necessarily think about those things. Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.